We're going to have two Bible readings now. It's Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews who are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, 
release those men. The jailer told Paul, the the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the city, from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. The second reading is Philippians chapter 1, and we're reading from verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had And now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Let me have my welcome. My name is Matt, Matt Fuller, if uh, we've not met. Uh, Jimmy, thank you for those uh, readings. To be 
clear, we're just actually looking at four verses this morning. That's all it is. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, 27 to, uh, to the end of that chapter. A mere four verses. But uh, they're pretty significant ones in the flow of the book, as hopefully we'll see. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you that in your goodness you have given us ahead of time what we need in the scriptures for life today. Thank you that wonderfully you speak it to us now. Would we hear your words rightly? Would your spirit apply them to us so that we would indeed be those who stand firm in one spirit together we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've bothered to look uh, at the citizenship test for the UK. One or two would have done because they've had to have taken it. Um, but if you look at this test, um, it's a sort of pretty eclectic. You know, you get the big booklet. Have you seen this? You get this sort of big booklet of kind of facts, and you have to read through it and memorize it, and then you get your exam paper, and you uh, have to get a, a decent uh, amount on it to uh, qualify, as well as you're having lived in the country for long enough. But uh, they changed it last year, and did you, the pass rate dropped to 64%. Sorry, 64%. This is, do, do you care about such things? 64% of those who actually take the exam uh, pass now. But I wonder if I gave it to you cold, and you hadn't done your homework, what you would get. Because it's a pretty bizarre collection of information. Here we go. Just let me give you, just throw out a few. You can see how you'd get on. There's a mixture of history. So some easy ones if you're a historian. Catherine Howard was the sixth wife of Henry VIII. True or false? Well, there's so many Catherines, I guess. Yeah, no, it's false. It's false. You indeed. Some say Bernard. Catherine Parr, of course. How many people sit on a jury in Scotland? Anyone? The Scots amongst us? (laughs) Fifteen. Fifteen in Scotland. Not twelve. Because. Because. Um, uh, The Channel Islands are part of the United Kingdom. True or false? True with confidence. Just shows you confidence doesn't mean a lot. Um, it is false. False. They are not part of the UK, uh, legally speaking. That's why they've got their dodgy tax status, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Which of the following is a British invention? The Walkman, the mobile phone, uh, the cash point machine? It's the cash point machine. Called an ATM in other countries, but not in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Uh, this is when walking your dog in a public place, what must you ensure? Is it A, that your dog wears a coat? <laughs> B, that your dog never strays more than three meters from you? C, that it does not come into contact with other dogs? Or D, that it has a collar with the name and address of the odor in it? See, it was, what a bizarre collection of information to become a, a, a UK citizen. But you've got, to, you've got to pass it, and not only 64% do. There you go. Did you, you, did you see this when they changed it, and uh, David Cameron appeared on the David Letterman show in the States, and he asked him a few questions? <laughs> and he got them wrong. <laughs> it was a bit embarrassing, including what does Magna Carta mean? Do you remember that? He got that one wrong. Because obviously it means... Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> This great charter, great charter, it's just a bit of French for you. Uh, this little bit of uh, Philippians chapter 1 then, verses 27 to 30, Paul is talking about what it looks like, how you live if you're a citizen of the gospel, a citizen of heaven. 
So chapter 1, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul uses a very strange word. It's literally live like a citizen. Makes a verb out of the word for city, polis, as in metropolis, etc., metropolitan. He takes the word polis and turns it into a verb. Live as a citizen. Live as a citizen. Whatever happens, live as a citizen of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and really that thought runs through the majority of the letter, certainly until chapter 3, verse 20. If you turn there, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul declares again that our citizenship, it gets translated very clearly here, is in heaven. So much of this letter is concerned with what it means to be a citizen of Jesus Christ, even when living well, in their case, in Philippi. Now, for the Philippians back then, that would have been a big deal. Um, obviously, Philippi, in uh, what is now uh, uh, Greece, um, they were a Roman city. They'd been given unique status as a Roman city due to support for the Emperor Augustus back at the best of time. But that's very rare. So, obviously, you're a Roman citizen if you're born in, born in Rome. But to be born in another city in a part of the empire which is distant, and anyone born in Philippi was a Roman citizen. They were very proud of that. That is a real gift of a status to grow up with. So for them, being a citizen was a big deal. And Paul is saying, hey, you, you get citizenship, don't you? We kind of don't um, in, the, in the 21st century. Being a citizen, we slightly take for granted. But then you get what a big deal it is to be a citizen. Live as a citizen of the gospel. Now, for you and for me, we are all citizens of one country or multiple. Some of us will have uh, uh, dual passports, and you'll be a citizen of the UK and the US or the UK and Australia or whatever it may be. And you can do that in lots of places. I, I had a quick look this week. Do you know the countries that will not allow you to have dual citizenship? China is one, Singapore. Uh, and then some others, slightly off the beaten trail, Djibouti. Just in case, you, if you ever want to be a citizen of Djibouti, you choose. You give up your UK passport, or go, that's one. Uzbekistan. That's your, you can't have both, I'm afraid. So if you want to go for Uzbekistan, you go for them and them alone. Quirky. But for most, you can have dual citizenship in lots of different... Paul is saying, look, everyone who is a Christian has dual citizenship. You, you belong to your nation and live as a good citizen of your nation. But your citizenship, your primary one, the place which is home, the place where it has your greatest loyalty is your citizenship in heaven. So live as a citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says. That must come first. That's your primary marker or badge of identity more than being a Brit or an Aussie or a banker or a ballerina or whatever it may be. This is your home. This is the citizenship that must define you. 
So really, this section, uh, he's, he's talking it through. Look, if you want to know what a citizen of the gospel looks like, it looks like this. And sorry, of our verses today, it looks like being united in opposition. Uh, next week, we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Being a citizen of the gospel looks like being humility and united in humility, uh, and so on it goes. But today, we're looking at the marks and of being a citizenship, citizen of the gospel. And in 27 to 30, it's dominated by two main verbs. It's a very similar idea. But he'll say, citizens of the gospel stand firm together and are not scared by opposition. Those are the two dominant verbs. They briefly will say, well, that's much like being like Jesus Christ. Okay? So citizens of the gospel, this is what they look like. They stand firm together and they're not scared by opposition. Let's take them in turn. First, the uh, citizens of the gospel stand firm together. Verse 27. Whatever happens, literally only. So, so Paul is saying, look, only this. Uh, look, above all this. Look, whatever's going on, this is the one thing I, I need you to get hold of, okay? Above all this, whatever happens, this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or conduct yourselves as citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm. Because because there's opposition, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, And actually, when opposition comes, it's harder to remain united because everyone has a different opinion. The opposition is coming against us. What should we do? We should run away. We should stand and fight in a battle term. What should you do? He's saying, look, the, 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 uh, the need for unity or, or, or the ability to be united is just that much harder when opposition comes. But stand firm together. The commentaries will tell you, it's a, it's a military language he's using. It's a, he may well have in mind, given he's writing to Roman citizens, a sort of, you know the Roman tortoise, when um, uh, the soldiers all come together and look, I may, I may um, have it, you know, this sort of thing, they come together, it was a classic sort of Roman fighting technique, so you've got, you know, shields in front, locked together, shields on top, uh, and they would shuffle forward, and if they came near you, then they would come the spears, and uh, that's it. I don't know if they made that noise. They probably do. Um, but uh, that was, and it was a very good um, style of battle. Um, you, know, you could throw things at them, and it would withstand quite a lot. Uh, Paul is writing to the Christians in Philippi, saying, look, stand firm together. Be, be united together. Be locked in together. You need... Uh, one another. Obviously, Christians are not using shields and spears, but they speak up. Verse 27, they're striving together as, or sorry, um, verse 27, I'll know you stand firm in the one spirit. What does that mean? Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. There's no military battles for the Christian, but they're united, they're standing firm for the faith of the gospel. What, what does that mean in, in Philippians? Well, the two things he'll really encourage them to stand up together in are, are this. One is speaking out the truth. That was chapter one. And the other is standing solid on the truth. That's chapter three. Don't allow the gospel to be distorted or diluted. So stand firm in those two ways, in, in telling people about Jesus Christ together. 
and in holding on to the truth together. Stand firm. He amplifies it a little bit more. Um, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This is rather than a military term, it's an athletic term. So Paul actually creates a word here. Essentially, he makes up this word, co-athlete together. Go and co-athlete together. That is, you know, you, you work together physically. My, uh, uh, my son in rugby training now, they're doing sort of proper scrums. It all becomes a bit more serious. And um, you want to work on that. You don't want to get that wrong. But if you're having a scrum and it's eight men against three men and the other five can't really be bothered uh, and they've naffed off to have a cup of tea, that is a walkover. You, you really do need to lock in and strive together. It's that sense, again, he's talking of here. In those two ways, speaking the gospel and standing firm on what is true. That it is very encouraging when that happens. Uh, on a Tuesday lunchtime, uh, many will know we have uh, a little service, sort of service, whatever state of the case, a little meeting uh, just around the corner in, uh, in one of the, the clubs, the men's clubs, uh, midweek in Mayfair. And there's a whole variety of people that come along. Uh, some of the guys who come along and women, they're just fantastic. I think of one guy in particular who, as far as is possible, always arranges client meetings for a Tuesday lunchtime. So midweek in Mayfair, I stand up and give a 20-minute talk or something at, uh, just after one. So he'll always say, let's have our meetings at lunchtime on a Tuesday. We'll have lunch and then uh, come along and listen to the, the, this talk. I go every week. It's terrific. And uh, so you know, at least 50% of the time, it seems, he's always bringing someone a client who sits there interested or alarmed. Um, it's a very good response. But it's such an encouragement that we are standing together in, in the work of telling people of Jesus Christ. It's a massive encouragement. And of course, there's a little, he's taking a risk there. Not every client thinks, brilliant, I want to do business with you. Uh, but he doesn't care, actually. He's just much more concerned with, here I am, Here's what I believe, by the way, and this is why you can do business with me, because I'm a man of integrity, but what do you make? What do you make of this? Brilliant. Brilliant. Very enormously encouraging, and you have a real sense of standing together in sharing the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's just being honest here. Look, when life gets hard, unity gets hard. And when life is tough, selfishness kicks in. So Paul says, commit to one another, stand firm together. They're the other, so citizens of the gospel stand firm together, and then similarly, it's this, the main verb here really, citizens of the gospel are not scared by opposition. So it's the other side of the coin in one sense, verse 28. Stand firm for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you'll be saved, and that by God. Well, the reason we had Acts 16 read, when Paul turns up in Philippi, this is a whole mixture of response. So he meets Lydia, and she says, brilliant, I'll become a Christian. Uh, and then Paul goes and tells this slave girl, and, and she becomes a Christian and says, well, I can't, you know, I'm not interested now. I'm no longer going to do this business of, of telling the future. Uh, and so her owners are furious and get, stir up trouble for Paul, and Paul gets thrown in prison and so on. There's always this sort of mixed response. 
Some will always oppose the message of the gospel for whatever reason, for varying reasons. In Philippi, there were vested financial interests. But it was the case, wherever Paul went, you carry on reading in uh, um, uh, chapter 18, he comes to Ephesus. People become Christians and they don't want to go and worship at the temple of Diana anymore. And they're furious and there's always hostility when people become Christians. Vested interests get challenged. It's just true. So Paul is saying, you know what happened to me when I was with you, but don't be frightened. It's a funny again, the word for frightened is a slightly odd word. It's the word used for a horse shying away. Sometimes a horse is, I don't know how many ride your horse, I don't ride horses very often, but I do know as much as this, you know, horses can be happily riding along and then smell something it doesn't like and go, and and sort of veer away and doesn't want to go there. And it happens apparently particularly in battle. You you try and ride your horse into battle, as most of you do this week. You try and ride your horse into battle and uh, uh, the horse will pick up the scent of death, of of blood, and go, nay, mate, um, we're not going over there and sort of turn around because it's scared. It knows, it senses, it's scared and so turns away. And Paul is saying, don't be scared. Don't be scared by those who will oppose you. Well, that happens sometimes. Interesting, verse 28. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them. So not being frightened is a sign to those who oppose you that they'll be destroyed, but that you'll be saved. Now, what does that mean? I don't really know. You could take it as objectively when someone really goes after Christians and persecutes them, it is a sign, objectively, that they're still hostile to God. Or it could have a more subjective sense that some people, when they persecute Christians, they know what they're doing is not right. They know it. Could be either of those, I'm not entirely sure. But there's a very positive half to verse 28. If you're not frightened by those who oppose you, it's a sign that you'll be saved. Look, when Christians keep going in the face of opposition, it's an encouragement that they're the real deal. They're not just in it for gain, short term. They're not just part of a gang because it's a nice sociological group. They're in it because they're convinced it's true. The, uh, I mentioned this last week. This is my last mention. This can't keep going on about it. But I actually got a few copies. It's on the bookstore. You can get uh, uh, this one. I just think it's a terrific, terrific read. This Warriors of Ethiopia, Dick McClellan, uh, Aussie evangelist who was in Ethiopia for 23 years. And it's written lots of stories of um, uh, some of the, the, the local Ethiopian evangelists. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, don't leave any copies. It'll be a waste uh, on the bookstore. Let me tell you about another guy. Um, uh, a guy, uh, Wadja. Now, there was when, when these guys, these Ethiopians, started telling people about Jesus, initially there was a bit of opposition from witch doctors because they were losing their trade. But the, the, the bulk of the opposition comes when there's a communist coup in Ethiopia, and for 17 years you get a, a, a communist in charge of the country just cracking down, hating the Christians, because the Christians are saying, well, we're Christians first before we're anything to do with you. That is what defines us, and that is viewed as uh, abhorrent to that regime. Wadja, Wadja is one individual. He was trained as a, a, a nurse medically and a preacher. They just can't stop him preaching. He gets warned, he gets warned. But eventually he's imprisoned for, uh, what do they call it, anti-revolutionary activities. And so he gets imprisoned for three years 
just on the basis of one man's testimony who really doesn't like him. One communist who's really anti-Waja, explaining the gospel. When he gets arrested, he's praying with seven other friends. So they all get thrown in prison together, eight of them, for three years. Just for being Christians and telling people about Jesus Christ. But they carry on, and in the prison, they keep telling people about Jesus. A year after imprisonment, Waja, who kind of becomes the doctor in the prison, he's got his training, a, new, a, loop, a bunch of new prisoners come in. One of them, he recognizes, oh, it's the man who testified against me, uh, who now has fallen out of favor uh, under the regime. And Waja treats him and heals up all his wounds where he's been beaten. And this man just cries and says, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this for me? I, I knew when I testified against you, I knew it wasn't right. But now here you are being, and anyway, he becomes a Christian. And uh, the, the years roll on, and they tell lots of people in, in, the, in the prison about this. And then uh, eventually the three years are up, and it comes for them to be released. And it's the day of release, and the, 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 uh, the governor, the commandant of the prison, stands up and reads out seven names to be released, but not Waja. He says, I, I think I'm due to, no, not you. Why not? I don't want you to go. The other seven can go. So the other seven say, well, we're staying with him. We're all together with him. If he's not going, we're not going. And then others look on and go, hold on a minute, this isn't right. And apparently after a while, you've got a thousand prison inmates shouting out, Waja, Waja, Waja. And you can imagine the governor going, oh, nuts. Um, and so eventually he lets all eight of them go together. Just fearless in the face of the intimidation. And a wonderful... I mean, there's just so many wonderful things going on there. There's a bloke who knows he's not doing the right thing when he persecutes the Christian, still does it, but has a chance later on in life to become a Christian. Seven, you can go home to your families. You can go home to your children. No, we're staying with him. It's extraordinary standing together in the face of opposition. Not scared. Not being frightened when people oppose you. There's a great sign of genuine belief. And by that, Paul doesn't mean if someone comes along, it's not going to happen in the UK today or tomorrow, if someone comes along, look, if you still keep telling people about Jesus, you're going to prison. Now, that's a little bit scary. But Paul will say, of course, but if you just keep going, if you stand firm and just keep speaking out, that's a great sign that you are the real deal. And it's a sign to your opponents, they just can't beat you. What do you do with a group of people who, when you say to them, if you keep telling people about Jesus, we'll put you in prison, they just keep doing it. You've got no power over them. Keep going, he says. Verse 29 is the logic. It's a sign that you'll be saved. Verse 29, four, because it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, verse 29, it has been granted to you. Literally, you'd have to translate it, it has been graced to you. It's the same word that gets used throughout the New Testament for grace. It is God's gift of grace to Christians that you not only believe in Jesus, but you suffer for him. And most of us sat here think, that's nice. That's one gift I'll not take. Thank you very much. I'll take most of the gifts that God wants to give, but suffering, 
not so sure about that one. I don't know about you. It makes me think of you know, a, 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 a massively, vastly obese, 40-stone sort of man. Is, there, is that, are you dead at that? I don't know. But anyway, run with it. The, uh, just enormous, enormous. Uh, and it opens a present from his wife on his birthday. And it's a year's gym membership. And he says, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, that ain't me. That's not what I want. And she says to him, but my darling, it is good for you. It is what you need. And you will be much better if you use this gift. It will help you. It will make you healthier, feel better, etc., etc. I don't want that gift. It is good for you. And I guess most of us would feel that way. It is a gift of God's grace to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Yeah, thanks for that. But uh, God says, no, it is good for you. It is in read this beautiful phrase this week. It is in suffering. Suffering is the friction that polishes our graces. Here in this letter, it is in persecution that you can grow in unity, actually. It's in persecution you can grow in humility in chapter 2, 1 to 4. I don't want suffering from you, God. Well, then you'll never be very healthy. You'll always be unhealthy. It is what you need to grow up, Paul says. A few years ago, I was in Sydney at a conference, uh, speaking at a conference, and um, uh, one of the other, uh, there's another guy there uh, who spoke before me, a, a, a pastor from Pakistan. And uh, he spoke about life for him and his church, which uh, not the church he was actually in, but the couple that they'd planted had been burned down and uh, his church had been firebombed and managed to survive. And Christians in some of the villages had been driven out and had driven out of their homes uh, and not allowed to live there. And uh, the guy interviewing him said, oh, how do you keep going in such a dangerous place? And the chap looked a bit bewildered and said, well, there are different sorts of dangers, aren't there? I wouldn't want to raise my children in Sydney. It's a very dangerous place. Much more dangerous than Pakistan. You are in great danger of being drifty Christians who never do anything and never really love the Lord because your life is so comfortable. That is very dangerous. I don't have that danger where I live. I'd rather have where I live than where you live. And everyone in the room was going, huh? What? completely different way of thinking. He understood Paul. No, it's a, it's a gift to you. You'll, you'll grow up as Christians under the suffering that comes. Not that everybody's identical, so verse 30, Paul could say, look, you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What do you mean, Paul? You're in prison, about to be tried, about to be killed for your faith. We're not in that sort of scenario yet. No, 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 but, but we're involved in the same struggle, he says. We're all Christians who, who, who want to tell people about Jesus. And look, the, the battle wages fiercely over here and not as fierce over here. Yeah, that'll always be the case. But it's the same struggle we're involved in. You and I here this morning, if we're Christians, we're not living in Ethiopia or, or, or Syria con, uh, contemporary or, or, or Iraq. We're not facing death. But it's the same struggle, Paul would say. You can still pray for those people. I hope you do. 
And for those of us in the West who are Christians in the UK, Paul would say, look, don't be scared by condescension that comes at work, disapproval that comes from family members, awkwardness occasionally with friends. Don't don't be intimidated by that. Don't be scared by that. Citizens of the gospel stand firm together. They're not scared by opposition. Or, as you'll put it, and I'm borrowing from next week, or as you'll put it, you just adopt the mind of Christ. Very briefly, let's look at this. Uh, adopt the mind of Christ. Now, I just want to be clear on this. When Paul says, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, he does not mean that if you live in a certain way, you qualify for heaven. It doesn't mean that. Jesus qualifies us for heaven. Jesus makes us citizens of heaven. We just receive that as a gift. So you and I never face a citizenship test for heaven. Jesus, because we'd all fail. Jesus has done that. Have you ever, this is, doesn't really work if you're a scientist, but if you are like me from a sort of arty, sort of humanities, liberal arts background, you'd have had the experience, school, university, whatever, at some point, of uh, facing an exam and uh, thinking, what have I got to do? Oh, yeah, there'll be two, I've got to do two questions from a choice of ten. And uh, let's look through the past papers. Uh, and I'm a bit short of time. So those two always come up. Those two questions always come up on every paper for the last six years. So I'll just learn those two. And uh, this is probably not just my own. You know, you, you, it doesn't really work. If you're maths, you'd get more than two questions to do, I know. But um, loads of, you, you do that. And then you arrive in the exam and uh, you turn up. It says, please answer two questions. And you turn over the page and your two aren't there. And you think, I don't know. I don't know. I don't do nothing about the others. But if you had to face a citizenship test for heaven, you turn over, there are only two questions, and Jesus tells us what they are. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the answer for all of us is no. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? And the answer is no. There are only two questions, and we can't do either of them, and we're stuffed. But Jesus takes the test for us, as it were. He is the one who loved God wholeheartedly. He is the one who loved others perfectly as himself. And so he's the one who qualifies us. And so when Paul says, live a life worthy, it's not in order to get in, but now you're in. Now you're in. Look to Christ, not just as your saviour, but your example too. Look at him. Let me just borrow verses five and six from next week. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was he like? What was God like? The Son of God in heaven, sitting there thinking, well, I'm quite content. I don't need the hassle of going down to earth. I don't need the hassle of being opposed and facing persecution. I'm just going to keep myself to myself. He didn't do that. Verse 6, who in very nature, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how he lived. Jesus said, look, I left comfort ease. I won your salvation by suffering for you. And now as a citizen of my kingdom, 
I ask you to suffer for me. So that the gospel is spread. And it is a gift to you. It is for your good. So you grow up. So you mature in the faith. Live as citizens of the gospel. Together. You can't do it alone. You've got to be locked in together. It's the only way you'll keep going. Stand firm together. Don't be frightened. But keep looking to Christ. Let me lead us in prayer together. Father, thank you for the honesty, for the realism of your word. We're conscious that in our small moment in history, we don't face the same persecution as uh, those men in Ethiopia 20, 30 years ago, as Paul did, as the Philippians might have done. But Father, we pray that for those of us who are Christians, we'd stand firm together, not split up, not be critical of one another, but be united And not be scared when, in our world, little hostility, persecution, disapproval comes. But we'd stand firm. We'd still be willing to speak of Christ. We would be those who live out what it means to be a citizen of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.